It's a joy to be here with you all this morning to worship the Lord together and to to fellowship with you. I bring you greetings from Grace Community Baptist Church, and uh, it's a joy also for me to have my wife, Jera, my daughter. Uh, So we will be in James chapter 1, so I invite you to turn there. And our text this morning will be verses 2 through 4. And the title of the message is How to Cultivate Joy in the Midst of Trials. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It reads, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the privilege we have to gather, and Lord, in particular, now to come under your word. We ask, Lord, that you would give us understanding of your truth. We ask that you would cause it to penetrate our hearts, to give us a more exalted view of you We pray, Lord, you do a deep work in our hearts. We pray you would help us to learn how to cultivate joy in the midst of trials. Lord, we come to you expectantly, and we ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus wants his disciples to have joy. In his upper room discourse with his disciples shortly before he would be betrayed, and crucified. He made this statement more than once. In John 15, verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. We learn that that Jesus is the source of true joy, and that he desires to impart his joy to us, so that our joy may be made full. And then in John 16, verse 24, he says, Until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. And then in John 17, in his prayer to his father, Jesus says in verse 13, But now I come to you, referring to his father, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Jesus wants his disciples to have joy. He wants them to have his joy, and he wants their joy to be made full. Paul tells us in Galatians 5 that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It comes to the believer as a fruit of the Spirit who indwells them. So we don't arrive at joy in our flesh. In fact, the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 run counter to the fruit of the Spirit. And so we must walk in the Spirit if we are to experience joy. In our passage today, James is going to speak about joy. From verse 1, we are introduced to James. He's the half brother of Jesus. Uh, we learn also that he's writing to the 12 tribes, who are, that's a basically uh, ethnic Jews who have believed in Christ. And there's a situation they're in, which is that they've been dispersed abroad. In particular, they've been dispersed abroad by persecution. 
And so this is his greeting to them. This is how he introduces the letter. And then following that greeting, he immediately launches into the imperative mood in this letter. He gives a command, a command to consider it all joy. And this is going to be characteristic of this letter as a whole. Uh, it, it has a lot of commands in it. It's full of commands. And in fact, this letter is, has the highest concentration of commands in all the books of the New Testament. Uh, so that's the character of this letter. And yet, even as he's giving all of these commands, he makes clear that he's speaking to his brethren. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren. He, he appeals to them as family. He appeals to them as one who is also under these commands that he is writing to them because these are ultimately the commands of God. James is delivering these commands in verse 1 we see as a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are God's commands being delivered to God's people. And these saints need direction for how they are to navigate their difficult circumstances. They're being scattered abroad by persecution. And so James is going to outline for them uh, in this letter overall what sort of responses are befitting of people who've truly been saved by grace through faith. Justification by faith is, is the assumed foundation for these saints, these brethren. And so then James is focused on how one ought to live in light of having been justified by faith. In other words, what, what kind of fruit does saving faith produce? You see, saving faith is a gift from God that results from regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And so it is supernatural in nature. It, it produces in you what your flesh could never produce. And James is going to highlight the distinctions between true, living, saving faith versus a superficial, counterfeit, dead faith that does not save. The opening section of the letter runs from verses 2 through 12, and it shows us how saving faith, true saving faith, behaves in the midst of trials. And our passage today comprises the first portion of this larger section, verses 2 through 4. The primary command of our text is found in verse 2, which is the word consider, consider. And this word has to do with our thought life. It has to do with our perspective. Other ways of expressing the sense of this word would be to, to count something as or to reckon as. Those who have been saved by grace through faith ought to have a particular perspective on the trials that they face. Consider it all joy. Count it all joy. Reckon it as all joy when you encounter various trials. The command is to have a joyful perspective when we are experiencing trials. Now, I'm sure we, we all are on board when we hear that Jesus wants us to have joy and for it to be made full. Of course, yes, absolutely, sign me up. I want joy. But then when you see the context is trials, he might start to think about pain and about suffering and about lust. And you might say, wait a minute, how am I supposed to have joy 
about these kinds of things. The command maybe starts even to feel burdensome. Here I go again, failing to have the joy that I've been commanded to have when I'm encountering trials. And thankfully, James doesn't just leave us with the command, but he shows us the way. How do you walk out this command? This passage identifies three ways of thinking about trials that if taken to heart and kept in your mind will help to cultivate joy in your heart in the midst of the trials that you face. The first way to think about trials that will help you to cultivate joy in the midst of them is you must anticipate the inevitability of trials. You must anticipate the inevitability of trials. We see this in verse 2. There are several details in verse 2 that that stress that facing trials is an inevitable element of the Christian life. The word when in verse 2 implies the inevitability of trials. It doesn't say if you encounter these trials. It says when. It's not a matter of if, but when. Jesus says in John 16, 33, in the world you have tribulation. In Acts 14, 22, Paul, after being stoned nearly to death, is speaking to the disciples, encouraging them, and he says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They've just seen an example of that in Paul's own life. And then Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we understand from the testimony of Scripture that Trials are an inevitable part of the Christian life. It is not a matter of if they will come, but when. And then we have the word encounter, which captures the way that trials just come along as we're going about our lives. This word is also used in Luke 10 in the parable of the Samaritan. You may recall where the Samaritan stops. He he sees a man who robbers had come upon and had beaten this man, robbed him left him for dead on the side of the road, and a Samaritan comes along to his aid. It describes the situation as that the man fell among robbers. That's the same word as encounter here in James. He fell among robbers. It's not as though he was looking to be robbed, but he's just going along his way in his travels, and the robbers come upon him. He falls among them. And so it is with our trials. As we going long in life, we will encounter them. We don't know precisely what they will be, but we do know that they're coming in some form. And also the, 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 the fact that we will encounter various trials, as it says here, this also further develops this sense of this inevitability of them, that they will be inevitable and they will be many. And they will have a variety of kinds, illness, injury, loss, conflict, ill treatment from someone, all kinds of trials we may face, a variety of intensity. Some of those trials are lighter. Some of them are very heavy. And so we understand that trials are inevitable and they will come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. In 1 Peter 4 verse 12 Peter echoes this 
sense of inevitability of trials. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing is happening to you. Don't be surprised that you're facing trials as though something strange or out of the ordinary for the Christian life is happening to you. You need to anticipate that trials will come. And looking back at verse 2, we need to spend some time looking at the word trials. If trials are an inevitable part of our lives as believers, we need to know what they are. This word is a neutral term that takes on the connotation of the context in which it is used. Uh, it can be an evil kind of testing with the goal of bringing about failure, which we would, just, we would use the word temptations to describe that. But uh, this word can also be used in a, in a good sense of testing with the goal of purification, of refining, strengthening, and validating. And that's where we would use the word trials to describe. And we'll see in verse 3 that the context here is clearly the good sense of testing. There's a word testing there, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And, and that word translated testing it speaks of an authenticating of something like a precious metal that's tested and proven to be genuine by fire. So it's clear that in, in verse 2, trials has that good sense about it. Now, if you drop down to verses 13 and 14, where the word tempted is, is used, that's the same word. It's a verb form of that same word. But in that context, it's talking about temptation. So the word can can mean both. It just depends on the context it's in. So in verse 2, we are looking at trials. And trials are essentially referring to testing situations of various shapes and sizes that we will inevitably encounter in the Christian life as we live it out. <coughs> now we do others a great disservice in our evangelism and in our discipleship of new believers if we do not communicate that trials will come. In fact, in some ways life gets harder as a Christian because you are now living against the current of a world that is at enmity with God. But along with being clear that trials will come and giving them that heads up, we also need to communicate that the grace of God is sufficient for our suffering and that the blessings of knowing and following Jesus Christ far outweigh what we may lose and what we may suffer. If you've been walking with Christ for a long time, it's probably not a novel idea to you that trials are inevitable. You probably have your fair share that you've been through. And yet, how often do we find ourselves getting caught unprepared or, or surprised when they actually happen to us? How often do we have that initial reaction of frustration when that next trial comes, not seeing it for, for God's purpose in your life with it? The Lord Jesus, Paul, Peter, James here all stress the inevitability of trials because we need that truth driven into our minds. Keeping the inevitability of trials in mind will help you shift away from the impulse to start wondering 
why is this happening to me? And shift toward being expectant about what the Lord may be doing in your life through this trial and, and even move you to be quick to ask the Lord to help you respond in a godly way to the trials that you know will inevitably come. So the first way to think about trials that will help you cultivate joy in the midst of them is you have to anticipate the inevitability of trials. It's not a matter of if, but when they will come. Expect them to come. Be prepared for them. Don't be surprised as though something strange is happening to you when you encounter them. And building on that first way of thinking about trials, the next way that you need to think about trials in order to orient your, your perspective toward joy is that you need to remember that trials strengthen true faith. We see that in verse 3. Trials strengthen true faith. We have to remember that. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And that word knowing is a participle of means, it, and it basically explains the how of obeying this command to count it all joy when you encounter various trials. The anticipation of trials is a necessary part of cultivating a joyful perspective on trials, but it's not sufficient on its own. We can anticipate that trials are coming and yet remain hopeless and miserable in a fatalistic perspective about them. There is something else that you must know about trials to keep and, and keep reminding yourself about them. It should dominate your thinking about trials. The means to joy in the midst of trials is knowing a specific truth about the function of trials in the life of a believer. This kind of knowledge is an intimate knowledge. It's one based in Scripture. And then the reality of this truth is experienced when you take God at His word by faith and you actually walk in it. So what is it that you must know? What is the means by which your perspective on trials gets oriented toward joy? It's knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And testing, as I mentioned earlier, speaks of the means of authenticating something, like a precious metal that is tested and proven genuine by fire. Jesus taught a parable about a sower sowing seed, and that seed represents God's Word, and it's sown among various soils. The first three soils all represent people who hear the Word, but eventually they fizzle out, and they never bear any real fruit. The second soil within those three specifically talks about a person who initially receives the Word with joy, but when affliction and persecution arise, immediately it says they fall away. These people show that they do not have true saving faith because they do not persevere in believing when their genuineness is tested. The latter three soils in that parable are all fruit-bearing. They bear varying degrees of fruit. They are genuine. They persevere. They bear fruit. And so that the testing of faith validates or proves out the genuineness or lack thereof. But for the true believer, this testing is ac actually does more than just validate the authenticity 
of true saving faith. This testing by trials produces endurance in our faith. I want you to consider what this statement says about the nature of true saving faith. The nature of true saving faith is that it responds to trials by being strengthened, by growing in endurance. Saving faith is supernatural in nature, a gift of God's grace, not of ourselves. This is the result of the new nature we receive when we're regenerated. It is designed by God to grow under the testing of trials. I also want you to think about what this means in terms of God's plan of redemption for us. From God's side, we see that He is preserving us. John 6.37 says, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. He keeps all that are given to him. And yet, from our experience of that, this preserving work of God, it's our perseverance through a growing endurance of faith that is strengthened by trials. That is how he preserves us, by bringing about an increasing endurance in our faith as trials test and strengthen our faith in Him. Trials are God's means to strengthen our faith so that it endures to the end. A muscle unworked will be weak. It will atrophy. And God loves us too much to let us go without the trials that will serve to build up and strengthen the muscle of our faith through testing. The word endurance is a, a compound word in the original language, which it means to, to abide or remain under. Think of an athlete who is doing strength training. And as they remain under weight that's placed upon them, they develop endurance. Each workout tests and strengthens for the next workout and that endurance continues to increase. A person abiding under a heavy load is a picture of faith abiding under the weight of a trial. It is strengthened, and its capacity for endurance is increased by the testing of trials. And also, just like your muscles may start to shake sometimes under that pressure, your faith may feel like it's trembling under the weight of a trial. Don't be discouraged when those muscles of your faith are trembling. It is a sign that God is working on your faith to strengthen it, to build it up. So if you want to count it all joy when you encounter various trials, you must remember that trials strengthen true faith. For the true believer, this strengthening of your faith is a certain reality that results each time that your faith is tested by trials. You may recall the false prophet named Balaam in the book of Numbers. There's the king of Moab, Balak, who tries to solicit his services to curse his chosen people, Israel. But every time that Balaam tries to curse them, he ends up speaking blessing toward them. Yahweh was forcing Balaam to bless his chosen people. And if you are God's chosen child today, 
by grace through faith in His Son, He will force your trials to bless you. Even those trials that feel like they are ravaging your life, God is forcing to bless you. If God has given you true faith, your trials will not destroy it. They will increase its endurance. And that is precisely why you should consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. I want to encourage you not to dread the trials that you encounter, but to milk those trials for everything they're worth. Every ounce of Christ's likeness that they can forge in you, every bit of endurance that they can fortify in your faith, every bit of the flesh that they can strip away, lay hold of the blessing being held out to you through the testing of trials, even as you suffer through them. Joy in the midst of trials is rooted in this certainty that true saving faith is strengthened when it's tested by trials. So we must set our minds on this truth as we seek to count it all joy when we encounter the various trials that we face. Now, an important clarification on on the all joy or pure joy or undiluted joy uh, is that it does not mean a complete absence of grief. It doesn't mean that trials don't hurt. It's not at all to minimize the gravity of the suffering that is experienced when we are under trials. Rather, it serves to elevate the overwhelming blessing of God that far exceeds and outweighs even the most excruciating experiences that we will go through. We we don't enjoy trials in and of themselves. We have joy concerning those trials because of what they accomplish in strengthening our faith to endure. We come to value this growth in our faith more than the temporal comforts of this life that it costs us in following Christ. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, we see that the cross was a joy, it says, that was set before him. It was a joy for him to do the will of his Father in going to the cross. It was a a joy for him to go to the cross to save us. And yet, in the same breath, it also says that he despised the shame. He was bearing the shame of our sin, and he despised that. For us, we may despise the pain of the trial, but nevertheless, we can have a joyful perspective at the same time because of the result that we know is going to come from our suffering, the good work that God is doing in our hearts through that trial. Ultimately, we endure as the eyes of our faith are fixed on Christ, who endured much hostility for us. As I mentioned at the, toward the beginning of the message, joy is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. So we must look at this as more than just a formula to, to getting to joy. You must depend upon God's provision ultimately as you walk out, verse 3, by faith. As you meditate on God's truth in this passage that He has revealed and you step out in faith and seek to walk it out, The Spirit will use the Word to renew your mind about trials and thereby supply that joy that you need in the midst of them. 
So cultivating joy in the midst of trials requires that you anticipate the inevitability of trials. It also requires that you remember that trials serve to strengthen true faith. And finally, we must embrace the perfecting work of trials. Verse 4, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The word let is another command that calls for action from one who's being acted upon. Be receptive or be submissive to what God is doing as he, as he tests and strengthens your faith through trials. Don't resist the process. Embrace it. Let it have its perfect work in you. That perfect result conveys the, the sense of maturity. Let your faith come to full maturity through this work that God is doing by trials. And then comes the reason why you should not resist this maturing process, where it's headed, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, the strengthening of your trials, of your faith through trials is not an end in itself. It isn't just about your faith being strengthened, but this is headed somewhere. There's an overarching goal toward which that strengthening is aimed. And that is that you would be made mature and made complete or whole according to the design of God. Our fall into unbelief and sin has left us in corruption. And we still have this corruption to some degree, even as believers, our faith is not yet fully mature. We still have remaining sin. We still have the flesh that we battle against. And so we must be brought to maturity and to, to be made whole through the progressive strengthening of our faith by the testing of trials. The final words of this verse, lacking in nothing, is basically stating the same idea as what has preceded from, from the negative. The result is that we are to be made mature, to be made complete or whole, and therefore lack in nothing. Paul declares in Romans 8.28 that God works all things together for good toward those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And then we see in verse 29, right after that, what is that ultimate good toward which God is working things? It is that we would be conformed to the image of His Son. That is what will deliver us completely from corruption. That is what will mature us, make us whole, leave us lacking in nothing, is that we would be made like His beloved Son. If you're here today and you realize that you've not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus Christ to save you from sin, then you are not on this trajectory toward maturity and wholeness and lacking in nothing. Scripture says that if you're not in Christ, you're dead in your trespasses and sins, and your trajectory is the eternal wrath of God. The only hope that you have for that trajectory to change and turn from judgment is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus, who is God, 
descended to this earth, took on human flesh, was born of a virgin. He lived the perfect life that we could never live in our place. And he died the death that we deserve for our sins against a holy God. And then he rose from the dead to signify that he had defeated death. For those who trust in him, he ascended into the heavens, showing that we have access with the Father. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. And even now, it's scripture says that he intercedes for his own. It doesn't matter what you've done in life, what array of sins you have committed. The blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover it all. If you would but repent of your sin and believe in him and this work of his in your place, he can save you, he can make you alive. If you believe the Lord has been doing this kind of work in your heart, you realize that you need to be saved. I'd love to talk to you after the service or I'm sure any, anyone you know here to be a Christian would love to talk to you about what the Lord may be doing in your heart in bringing you to himself, to trust in him. For those who are trusting in Christ, we must embrace the maturing work of God in our lives through trials if we are to have joy as we suffer under them. We must keep the end goal in view. The pain is not in vain. There is a purpose to your suffering. When you get a shot or, or you have a surgery, you endure the present pain of that treatment in light of the restoration of your health that will result in the end. And that is what helps us in our trials to understand the pain, the suffering that we're going through has a purpose. It has a good and glorious end by the design of God. A preacher from the 1800s, Theodore Kyler, presents the matter in the following words. He says, When we reach heaven, we may discover that the richest and deepest and most profitable experiences we had in this world were those which were gained in the very roads from which we shrank back with dread. The bitter cups we tried to push away contained medicines we most needed. The hardest lessons that we learn are those which teach us the most and best fit us for service here and glory hereafter. Those bitter cups that we, we want to push away contain medicines that we most need. If you don't keep the end goal in mind, you're going to struggle to have joy in the midst of your trials. You'll resist what God is bringing into your life to mature your faith instead of embracing its maturing work in you. The ultimate trajectory of this maturing work is to be made whole, to become like Christ. And that is a trajectory worth embracing wholeheartedly. So you now have the answer to the question of how to cultivate joy in the midst of trials. 
there are three ways that you need to think about trials in order to have your perspective on them oriented toward joy. You must anticipate the inevitability of trials. You must expect that they will come. You must be ready for them. Don't think it's strange when they happen to you. And ask God to help you respond to them in a godly way rather than getting frustrated when they come into your life. You must remember that trials strengthen true faith. Remember that trials function to validate true saving faith. And beyond that, they function to build up the endurance of your faith through testing. Knowing with certainty that saving faith is strengthened when tested should fill your heart with joy, even as you feel the sting of those trials because of what they will accomplish in you. And you must remember, you must embrace the perfecting work of trials. There is a good purpose for your trials that God is bringing into your life. They are tailor-made by your good Father. Keep that end in mind. Don't resist the maturing work of trials that is aimed at making you mature, making you whole, making you like Christ. Embrace the process in light of that end result so that you may go through it with joy as you look forward to glory. Jesus wants his disciples to have joy. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have his joy. He wants your joy to be made full. And that joy comes to us as a fruit of the Spirit. God gives us faith. He matures this faith through trials. And it is all to His glory. What a glorious Savior we have. In the words of Hebrews 12, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. And you are a good Father. We thank you that your word is sufficient to equip us for all that pertains to life and godliness, even our trials. We thank you, Lord, for revealing to us this truth that we must anticipate the inevitability of trials so that we can be prepared for them so that we will not count it strange when they happen. Help us, Lord, to be quick to turn to you in prayer, to ask you for help that we might respond to, to these trials in a godly way. And Lord, we thank you that you show us the way to fulfilling this command to count it all joy, which is to remember that trials strengthen true faith, that it is certain that you are doing this work in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you would give us the trials that serve to strengthen and build up the endurance of our faith. Help us to see our trials for what they are as you have described them in your word. 
that we might have joy as we go through them, even as we feel their sting. And Lord, I ask that you'd help us to embrace the perfecting work of trials, to lay hold of the blessing held out to us in them, to know that there is a good end toward which they are working, to look forward to the perfecting work that you are doing in our lives, to make us more like our glorious Savior, whom we love because he first loved us. Lord, we ask that you would accomplish all of this in our lives, helping us to have our eyes ultimately fixed on Christ, the one who endured much hostility for us, the one who counted it a joy to die for us, to rise for us. And help us, Lord, to receive joy as a fruit of your Spirit in the midst of our trials. Help us to walk in the Spirit and not according to the flesh, that we might experience the fullness of joy that you have for us. We give you thanks, Lord. We give you praise. ask that you would bless your word to bear much fruit in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.